0: NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you. Guided by plant professionals, dig into botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Online learning your way. Register at nybg.org. From the newsroom of The Washington Post. Hi, this is Ben Terrace calling from The Washington Post.
1: Hi, Jeff. Miss Winfrey, Oprah.
0: Hi there. How are you? Um... It's Lisa Bonus, calling from The Post. This is Post Reports. I'm Martine Powers. It's Tuesday, August 20th. Today, the man behind President Trump's immigration agenda, the underdog trying to disrupt the Republican primaries, and a science field trip. So, why did you want to write a story about Stephen Miller now?
2: So Stephen Miller scored one of his most important policy victories last week when the White House announced what's called the public charge rule.
1: Throughout our history, Americans and legal immigrants have pulled themselves up by their bootstraps to pursue their dreams and the opportunity of this great nation.
2: And that's basically an effort to limit the number of green cards that are given out to new immigrants to the United States by denying those who come from lower income backgrounds or those who are considered at risk of becoming a burden on society. And so this is a broad expansion of that that Miller himself has told colleagues will have socially transformative effects on American society.
0: Nick Miroff covers immigration for The Post. He and White House reporter Josh Dossie have been looking behind the scenes at the role of Stephen Miller, the 33-year-old who's senior advisor to President Trump.
3: Every time we were reporting an immigration story, he seemed to have a larger-than-life hand in whether folks were being fired, new policies were being implemented. Whatever was happening, there seemed to be Stephen Miller influence behind the scenes. And one of the perpetual questions we had was, how does he— have such power in the administration? How does he maneuver? How does he make things happen the way that he wants them to happen?
0: And does he say that he has this kind of larger-than-life role in the White House and particularly in immigration policy?
3: Well, Stephen actually tries to downplay his role. It's
4: important that the president get credit for the sea change that he and he alone, through his vision, grit, and leadership, has achieved in the space of immigration
3: whenever truisms of his presidency is there's room for one star, and the president has often gotten frustrated when other folks like Steve Bannon were cast as a puppeteer of sorts. So Miller is kind of an ultimate survivor in the president's orbit, and the reason he's been able to do that is he does very few on-the-record interviews. For this story, he only talked to us after we presented extensive reporting and said, we're writing about you one way or the other, and the goal of the interview seemed to be to downplay his role in the president's orbit.
4: I do nothing except implement and follow the instructions that the president provides to me and to others that are working in this space, It's his agenda, his vision, his view about where we have to take American society.
3: Even as DHS officials, current former senior administration officials, everyone else in the president's orbit explained his role as, you know, very powerful, very influential. The point of the interview is to say otherwise, which is a strange tactic. But it's why he's been there for more than three years, has been in the campaign, been in the White House and remains kind of at the seat of power because he knows how the president works.
0: So these other senior officials that you talked to about Stephen Miller, what did they bring up as examples of the ways that he has been able to exert his influence?
2: Well, one of the things that people often mention is that Miller will never challenge or disagree with the president in the middle of meetings. And he will always circle back to the president to try to bring him around to his viewpoint and ultimately prevail. Because the one, the one thing that very few people in the White House and in the administration can compete with him on is that kind of access to the president and also that degree
3: of trust, I'd say. Stephen Miller is also effective in fueling the president's Innate sense that folks at agencies are trying to scuttle his agenda. Stephen has pushed for a purge at DHS, cleared the top ranks at Homeland Security, has convinced the president on a number of occasions to turn on other senior advisors. Stephen Miller. And uh, private, cast things to the president in the way the president wants to hear them. You know, I'm out here fighting for your ideological agenda. I'm pushing for you. You have only a few people you can trust, and other people are really out to get you. And I think Nick can attest to this maybe even more than I can. But at DHS and at some of these agencies, um, they live in fear of Stephen Miller turning on them. Because if he does, they know their job's in jeopardy immediately.
0: So how did Stephen Miller first decide that he wanted to be a part of President Trump's administration?
3: Stephen Miller is a staffer to Jeff Sessions, a former Alabama senator and attorney general. And folks on the Hill would say he would proselytize to anyone who would listen about his restrictionist immigration agenda and what he wanted to do. And then in the 2016 campaign, he came over with Sessions and Bannon and others uh, and found a president who agreed with his immigration agenda and gave him wide latitude to write speeches about it, to promote it, to do all of the things that he always dreamed of doing on Capitol Hill. Stephen Miller, you know, cared about one issue and found a president, and this president, uh, unlike the other Republican candidates in 2016, who was willing to go as far as he was willing to go. Miller says that when he saw Trump To send
2: down the escalator in Trump Tower to announce his candidacy, that it had a kind of visceral effect on him. And and he describes it as a a kind of eureka moment where finally an American politician expressed everything that he too felt. And he says at that moment he immediately wanted to join the campaign.
4: Like so many Americans, I felt this unbridled sense of joy that I never before experienced in American politics. It was as though everything that I felt at the deepest levels of my heart were now being expressed by a candidate for our nation's highest office before a watching world.
0: And what is his ideological agenda and what do we know about where those ideas came from?
2: Miller views immigration as the way to engineer a kind of social transformation in the United States. He calls himself a conservative populist, and his view basically is that there is too much immigration to the country, that it is eroding a sense of national identity, and that by reducing immigration and reducing some of the wage competition that he says is placed on the U.S. working class as a result of high levels of immigration, that he thinks that we can have a kind of you know, transformative social outcome in addition to you know, building a kind of consensus behind the president and his America First agenda.
4: Immigration is an issue that affects all others, right? Immigration affects our healthcare system. Immigration affects our education system. Immigration affects our public safety. It affects our national security. It affects our economy and our financial system. It, so it, it touches upon everything.
3: So, Stephen, in some ways, has been more draconian than others in the administration about immigration. He pushed for separations of, of families, a zero tolerance policy to try and deter folks from crossing the border. He has not been concerned, as others have been, about the conditions in some of the facilities of the border. He sees them as a deterrent. He has pushed for mass deportations. John Kelly, who was the president's chief of staff but was formerly a DHS, clashed with Stephen while he was a DHS because he wanted to deport everyone. And John Kelly said, can we only do felons? And that caused quite a fight. And Stephen knows how, uh, unlike some in the administration, to work the bureaucracy. One of the things we heard repeatedly in reporting the story is that when Stephen has an idea on immigration policy that others maybe aren't listening to, he will call deep into an agency, maybe call an assistant commissioner at DHS or call someone pretty low level and say, the president wants you to do this. And sometimes we'll even go around the cabinet secretaries. So he plays a game of working the president, of working folks in the agency of working other advisors in the White House, it's it's a more sophisticated operation than some in the White House play at trying to get his agenda done. And unlike many in the West Wing that, that we cover and write about, he has a very strong idea of what he wants to do with his time in the White House, and he spends every day trying to implement it.
0: Because of Stephen Miller's very extreme views on immigration, his talk about things like a united cultural identity, the fact that he is so laser-like in his focus on immigration policy. You've reported that some senior officials have called him racist. What did they say?
2: So in the course of reporting this story, I asked a lot of folks who work closely with him whether they thought he was racist. No one told me that they had heard him ever say anything racist, but several people told me that they got the impression that there was something driving him, and that that laser-like focus on this particular issue and the, and the goal of both deporting as many pe- people as possible and significantly reducing the number of new arrivals coming to this country, that they suspected that there was some kind of prejudice or bigotry there. And when I put that question to him in our interview, he reacted, of course, very defensively.
4: Anybody who says that is an ignorant fool, a liar, and a reprobate who has no place in civilized society. It is a scurrilous and scandalous lie born of a complete and total lack of understanding of the harms done by uncontrolled migration to people of all backgrounds and born of a contempt for this nation, for our law enforcement officers and for the citizens who live here. And oftentimes, I might add, born of a personal grudge against this administration. Anybody who says such a plainly stupid thing should be banished from being able to contribute to articles as a matter of policy.
0: What do you think Stephen Miller and his success within the Trump administration. What does that say about how President Trump's administration works?
3: That's a good question. There's been such a rotating cast of characters in this administration, and there have been very few people who have made it as long as Stephen Miller has. And it's a product, I think, of, of several things. One, the president trusts Stephen to be his writer and his voice. He has never publicly criticized the president. That's another way he has survived. No matter what the president has done, in some of the most dark moments of the administration, Stephen Miller has been on TV defending the president vigorously. And he's been very careful, even as he's disagreed with others in the administration, not to cross Jared Kushner and Ivanka. Trump. But folks who have been kicked out of this administration, have been fired, have been unceremoniously booted. Rex Tillerson, John Kelly, the list can go on and on and on. Steve Bannon all crossed to Jared Nivanka Ivanka at some point and that led partially to their demise. So he's been very uh, savvy at understanding that this is a family operation, that the president craves loyalty And one of the other reasons that that Stephen, I think, has succeeded in this administration is he understands. What makes a president tick? He understands that the president wants to be having these cultural battles all the time. He gives the president ideas for cultural battles. He understands that the president thinks that immigration is a reason he won in 2016, and that as long as they're talking about immigration, that the president thinks he's winning now. And Stephen understands that impulse and gives him what he wants to talk about. I mean, Stephen, in a lot of ways, sees the world in in the way the president does and knows how to... Survive at all cost.
2: Yeah, I think he's he's a, a Trump translator in the sense that he brings a kind of coherence to the president's grievances and frustrations. He's able to 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 take those things and translate them both into language that the president can use in his in his public statements, but also policy formulations that Miller then can try to move along with the president behind him. Nick Miroff covers Immigration for the Post.
0: Josh Dossey covers the White House. How has your day been going so far? Great.
5: Had three hours on the plane, so there's no speech I can't write in three hours. (laughs) (laughs) That's Bill Weld.
3: Our next guest is the former governor of Massachusetts. He's also the sole challenger to President Donald Trump for the Republican Party nomination. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming former governor Bill Weld.
0: Weld went down to Miami this month to talk to the National Association of Black Journalists about why he's running for president and why they should care.
5: Thank you very much, everybody. And my thanks
0: to the NABJ. Wells insists that he is mounting a serious challenge against President Trump, even though a recent poll of likely Republican voters had him at just 7%. But we wanted to talk to him because his whole candidacy and his long-shot strategy to win the nomination, it says a lot about the state of the Republican Party and how much it's shifted over the last couple of decades.
5: My whole strategy is to... Expand the electorate that's going to vote in the Republican Party and uh, bring in uh, Democrats uh, and independents. There are 20 states where independents can vote or, uh, and Democrats in 17 of them in the Republican primary. And, and that was my experience in Massachusetts. I was always kind of 50-50 with the Republican uh, voters. And then the independents would come in for me six to one. So I won by a lot even though I didn't win by a lot among Republicans. And I do think the stage is set for millennials to realize that you know, they're getting the short end of the stick on this trillion dollar deficit. They're getting the short end of the stick on you know, calling climate change a hoax and doing absolutely nothing about it. They're gonna reap the whirlwind there, not Mr. Trump's generation. I think that women, uh, not just suburban women, could rightly be offended By the recent spate of statutes, basically treating all women as uh, carriers or chattels for men, uh, including rapists. I I just, I don't understand how anyone could support those uh, statutes.
0: Weld's whole plan is that he wants to bring back old school republicanism, the kind that he says was around in the 90s when he was elected governor in a traditionally democratic state.
5: My message is already emblazoned on the New Hampshire license plate. Live free or die, baby. <laughs> and I've called myself a libertarian since I was in law school and all the time I was governor. You know, my, my platform is I want the government out of your pocketbook and out of your bedroom. And that's, that's both the Libertarian Party and it's the kind of Republican Party that I was a member of for many years.
0: It has been a little while since you've been in office. You're a Republican governor and a very popular Republican governor at the time. But I'm wondering, in 2019, do you still think that you are part of the Republican Party, that the Republican Party that exists now, that that's one that that wants
5: you? I'm certainly not part of Donald Trump's wing of the Republican Party. You know, Donald Trump... Today uh, is occupying the position that the Know Nothing Party had back in the 1850s when the Whig Party, uh, you know, split in two, mm-hmm. and the pro-slavery um, half, the Southern half, was called the Know Nothings, mm-hmm. and they're uh, lineal forebears of Donald Trump. You know, violent uh, anti-immigrant prejudice, uh, conspiracy theories, violent rallies. And the other half of the party went on to elect Abraham Lincoln president of the United States. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, if, if you're trying to say uh, to decide today which one of those is a New England Republican, the party of Abraham Lincoln is the New England Republican for sure.
0: So you want to be the next Abraham Lincoln. Is well, what you're I, saying. I, I
5: wouldn't quite put it that way, but uh, I, I want to be uh, the part of the party that I grew up with Indiana. and that it does appeal to the better angels of our nature, as Lincoln did.
0: But at the same time, I think one thing that a lot of people have been really shocked by over the past few years is the extent to which we're not really seeing Republican leadership that is willing to call President Trump out when he uses racist rhetoric, right. when he calls immigrants' names, when he says things that a lot of people find very horrifying. Yeah, no, I don't and, understand. And, and so, so the idea that there is like the half that is the know-nothing half and then the half that is the Abraham Lincoln half. It doesn't really seem like the Abraham Lincoln half is there.
5: Well, I would agree with that. They're not, uh, they're not speaking up. Uh, I know a lot of the uh, Republican senators in Washington, and I've worked well with them over the years. And frankly, you know, I've been a Republican since I was 18 years old, and I did a lot for the party for a long time. So I know a lot of the people, including people who are still in Washington, and they're excellent people. Uh, and... Uh, I don't know what's happened to still their tongues, but, uh, you know, part, uh, part of it is that the president says he's a counterpuncher. He's not a counterpuncher. He's vindictive. And in recent months, it's uh, bordered more on towards cruelty, not just vindictiveness, in my opinion. Uh, so maybe people don't have a stomach for that. Now, part of the reason why I don't have any problem or hesitation in running is that uh, I'm not a sitting governor of a state who knows that President Trump would try to defund mm-hmm. every state program?
0: That, that there are some people who might be more vocal about their criticisms if they yeah,
5: weren't I mean, scared of that's, losing that's, money that's for a, their that's state. A, that's a bar for uh, John Kasich. It's a bar for uh, not so much Kasich because he's now out. But uh, Larry Hogan in Maryland, mm-hmm. uh, you know, Charlie Baker in uh, Massachusetts is. Uh, He's got enough stature to consider a national race, but he knows exactly what would happen. Um, And and that's not my uh, situation, and I'm not economically insecure, so he can't get at me that way. Uh, And once you've been head of the criminal division of the Justice Department in Washington, I assure you, you're not scared of anybody.
0: (laughs) (laughs) And yet President Trump has continued to have a ton of support from the Republican Party, both Republican Party leadership, but also just regular voters. Have you found yourself disappointed with Republican, like average Republican voters?
5: Yeah, I, I mean, I must say, I don't, uh, I don't get it. I think uh, the president wants to be an autocrat. Uh, the reason he wants to sow discord and have everybody hate each other is because that makes people more malleable and easier for a dictator to take over. You look at Hitler, you look at Mussolini, you look at Roman history. It, it's, it's always the way. Uh, and uh, he makes no bones about it. He says, uh, it would be nice if we didn't have to have elections. Then later he says, I was just joking. Then he says, well, you know, in my third term, maybe I'll do this. Then he says, I was just joking. I mean, how stupid does he think we are? We know when he's kidding and when he's not kidding. And he's almost never kidding.
0: (laughs) (laughs) One last question. Um, You say that your goal with this campaign is to win. And I understand that. But if you don't win, what do you think your bar for what success would look like? Do you think your candidacy would be a success if you managed to ensure that President Trump got defeated by a Democrat, or do you feel like it's a successful campaign if you just managed to talk a lot about Trump's faults in a very public way?
5: Oh, no, talking is not enough. No, I'd want to see some electoral results. I'd, uh, at a, a, a bare minimum, barest of minimums, I want to wound Mr. Trump in the New Hampshire primary. And that's that's a good state for me. It's a neighboring state, and there's a lot of moderate Republicans up there. They may not be in the party hierarchy who are leftovers from the Trump campaign. Matter of fact, they're not. <laughs> but I, I talk to them, and I think most of them will support me. And the rank and file, I tell everybody on the ground in New Hampshire, Democrats as well as Republicans, you know, come on in, you can vote for me. And I don't get pushback. Uh, the Democrats love that idea. I have a lot of traction. Needless to say, it's not been picked up in the polls because the pollsters are not going to ask Democrats who you're going to vote for in the Republican primary. But it's all perfectly legal and it makes sense. And I'm on the ground there. Trump is not. And I can remember going and shaking uh, 240 hands in three diners in uh, northwest New Hampshire. And I did not get a single person saying, not interested, buddy. I'm for Trump. Quite the contrary. People were saying, Trump? Just shaking their heads after I said I'm running against Trump in the primaries. These may not have been Republicans, but you see, I don't care. Because for me, a Democrat is just as a potential a voter as a Republican is, given my message.
0: Bill Weld is a former governor of Massachusetts and President Trump's only opponent for the Republican primary. We talked to him at the National Association of Black Journalists' Convention in Miami. And now, one more thing. A summer field trip to surprising places across America that can teach us about science.
1: We picked a dozen places. We sent writers and photographers and put together a series of stories and beautiful images about these locations, many of which you've probably never heard of. Sure, you've maybe heard of the Atchafalaya Swamp, but have you ever heard of the Brookhaven Particle Collider? I'm Joel Achenbach. I'm a science reporter with the Washington Post National Desk. So I went to Green Bank, West Virginia, which is where the National Radio Observatory is established. It's out in the middle of nowhere, a really neat place. My editor went to observe birds in the Delmarva Peninsula. But let's just introduce a couple of these places, starting with the Ray County Courthouse in Dayton, Tennessee.
4: Now the Bible says Joshua made the sun stand still. Now do you believe that in fact Joshua did make the sun stand
1: still? That's where the Scopes Monkey Trial took place. You know the Scopes Monkey Trial. Tennessee passed a law prohibiting public schools from teaching evolution. A local man, John Scopes, challenged the law. There was a big trial.
4: I believe what the Bible says, but I suppose you mean it was the earth that stood still. Well, did he not believe that the sun went around the earth?
1: Scopes was convicted of violating the law. And uh, you can go and see a reenactment of this in the Ray County Courthouse.
4: Darwinists say you can believe in evolution and in the divine creation at the same time. Well, Darwinists may believe in the creator, but they don't believe he created
1: man. The next stop on our tour, the humongous fungus.
3: Look at all that. That whole root is gone. See this pitching? See how wet, it looks in there. That tells me it's attacking a live tree.
1: The honey mushroom spreads underground through trees' root systems in a forest in northeast Oregon in the Blue Mountains. It fruits an edible honey brown cap just a few weeks each year, typically after the first fall rains. The rest of the year is underground and invisible, but researchers estimate that the colony covers 3.7 square miles, and may weigh a collective 35,000 tons. Here's a place you may not know about. The Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania, I certainly had never heard of it. My colleague Sarah Kaplan went there, and she says you can experience a kind of time travel because there's all this geological history. It's a place that was once a wide, shallow sea with all kinds of exotic giant mosses and huge ferns and strange, exotic land animals waddling around on their primitive legs. There's a lot of human history here too. The settlers came in, they cut down the trees, they put in railroads. And then over time, some of that forest was reclaimed. The Civilian Conservation Corps came in. This was a place where they planted trees and plotted hiking trails. Slowly, a lot of the plant life and animal life came back to the Grand Canyon of Pennsylvania. And now it's a place where Sarah can go and not only report a story, but camp out and listen to the birds and enjoy nature. The thing we were hoping people would experience and understand in looking at these stories is that science is everywhere. It's not always obvious, but if you look or listen, you'll find it.
0: Joel Achenbach is a science reporter for The Washington Post. To see the incredible photos and read about all of the dozen sites on the Post summer science tour. Visit postreports.com, where you can find a link to the whole project. That's it for today's show. Thanks for listening love hearing from people about their thoughts on each episode. Thanks to Eugene from Michigan, who sent us an email about a recent episode about the Ferguson shooting and the state of the economy, which he said was eye-opening, even though it was a little depressing. Send us an email at postreports at washpost.com or talk to us on Twitter by using the hashtag postreports. I'm Martine Powers. We'll be back tomorrow with more stories from The Washington Post. Ready to set off on your captivating journey into the botanical world? NYBG's brand new online education program, Plant Studio, offers bite-sized courses tailor-made for you to pursue your passion as a budding plant person. Guided by professionals, dig into gardening, botany, floral design, landscape design, and more. Grow your skills with online learning your way. Register at nybg.org.